Hi, listeners. Before we start today, did you know that you can help Hub History win a Fan Favorite Award at the 2020 Boston Preservation Awards? Just go to bostonpreservation.org slash fan favorite, or look for the link in this week's show notes. Vote early and often. Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 203, The Railroad Jubilee. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about an enormous party thrown by the city of Boston in September of 1851. I originally planned to air this show last week, so it would have corresponded with the anniversary of the event, on September 17th through 19th. That's right, this party was so big that it lasted three days. After 15 years of development, the railroad network centered in Boston stretched out in every direction, linking the Port of Boston to the American Midwest and the interior of Canada, with the Cunard Line steamers giving access to the markets in England. To celebrate this new era of railroading, the city threw a grand railroad jubilee and invited President Millard Fillmore, the Governor General of Canada, and dignitaries from all over the country. Besides commerce and steam locomotives, this episode will highlight a growing split within the Whigs, Boston's ever-present competition with New York City, and the seemingly unavoidable rush toward a civil war over the question of slavery. But before we talk about Boston's Railroad Jubilee, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is one of my favorite titles about Boston in the 19th century, and it's the first place I ever read about Boston's 1851 Railroad Jubilee. Published in 2011, A City So Grand, The Rise of an American Metropolis, Boston 1850-1900, by Stephen Puleo, helped me turn an interest in Boston history into a tour company and eventually into the podcast you're listening to right now. The book traces the development of Boston in the second half of the 19th century in bold strokes, from the rescue of accused fugitive Shadrach Minkins, to the sudden influx of Irish immigrants, to the construction of America's first subway. Here's how the author's website describes the book. The second half of the 19th century is, quite simply, a breathtaking period in Boston's history. Unlike the frustrations of our modern era, in which the notion of accomplishing great things often appears overwhelming or even impossible, Boston distinguished itself between 1850 and 1900 by proving it could tackle and overcome the most arduous challenges and obstacles with repeated and often resounding success. A City So Grand chronicles this breathtaking period in Boston's history for the first time. Readers will experience the abolitionist movement of the 1850s, the 35-year engineering and city-planning feat of the Back Bay Project, the arrival of the Irish that transformed Boston demographically, the Great Fire of 1872 and the subsequent rebuilding of downtown, Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone in Boston, and the many contributions Boston made to shaping transportation, including the Great Railroad Jubilee of 1851 and the grand opening of America's first subway. These stories and many more paint an extraordinary portrait of a half-century of progress, leadership, and influence that redefined Boston as a world-class city. And for the upcoming event, I have three options for you to choose from. 
First up is a virtual program from the Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford, titled Acts of Rebellion and Envisioning a New Society. The talk this Wednesday, September 23rd, will feature Dr. Vincent Brown, who teaches American and African American history at Harvard, and Dr. Timothy McCarthy, who's a human rights activist on the faculty of the Kennedy School. Together, they'll talk about the role of protests and revolts in shaping black resistance and freedom movements from slave rebellions in the 18th century Atlantic world to the Black Lives Matter movement today. Registration for the interactive Zoom event is limited to the first 100 people, though the talk will also be live-streamed on Facebook in case of an overflow crowd. Next, I want to feature another installment in the Reflecting Attics series from Revolutionary Spaces as they explore the life and world of Boston Massacre victim Crispus Attucks to mark the 250th anniversary of the massacre. The event coming up on September 29th is titled Imagining Attucks, and it'll focus on how Attucks has been portrayed in visual media, like paintings and engravings. As a black man, Crispus Attucks didn't fit the narrative that artists of the time like Henry Pelham and Paul Revere tried to portray with their engravings of the massacre so he was left out of the picture in the 18th century. When Attucks was rediscovered in the 19th century, artists painted him back into the picture, with each successive generation projecting their own values onto the canvas. The panelists for this talk will include a playwright who's writing a show about Crispus Attucks, the living history interpreter who plays him in the Boston Massacre reenactment each year, and the author of a book about Crispus Attucks in American memory. And finally, I have another event in the Charter Day series from our friends at the Partnership of Historic Bostons. The partnership is dedicated to telling the stories of Boston, Massachusetts, and Boston, Lancashire, which means that they usually focus heavily on the experiences of the 17th century Puritans who came for the town in Lancashire to found the town in Massachusetts. On September 30th, next Wednesday, they'll be taking a very different approach to the history of 17th century Boston by highlighting the experiences of the indigenous peoples who lived along the shores of Massachusetts Bay before the Puritans arrived. Their guest speaker will be Dr. Larry Fisher, Ph.D. and Council Chief Sachem, who bears the traditional name Chief Sachem Wampamequan Wampatuck. Dr. Fisher is a direct descendant of the Grand Sachem Chickatawbit, who we've discussed on the show in the past. And he's also the presiding council chief sachem for the Mattachesett tribe of the Massachusetts nation. Dr. Fisher will interpret the human experiences of the Indian nations of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and their relations with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Here's how the partnership and the Massachusetts nation describe the event. The land from the Merrimack River south to the Taunton River was shared among the Massachusetts nation, which includes today's known surviving tribes, the Mattachesett, Natick, Ponkapog, and Namaskat. Chief Sachem Larry Fisher and other spokespersons will examine the partially interpreted history of 16th and 17th century Massachusetts up to the present. We believe all aspects of our common history shall be preserved and remembered together. We recognize that only with inclusion, honesty, and honoring our individual and distinctive tribal histories will we truly achieve our mission. All three virtual events require advanced registration, and all three are free, though a donation is strongly encouraged. As we've mentioned on the show in the past, historic sites and history organizations of all stripes are suffering during the pandemic. 
And just because the doors are closed to visitors doesn't mean there aren't expenses. For example, the Royal House discovered a critical threat to their building's foundation that required immediate repair during the lockdown, which added to their financial needs. So check out the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 203 for links to all three upcoming events and a link to purchase Stephen Puleo's A City So Grand. Before I move on with the show, I just want to thank our Patreon sponsors. Hub History is a completely independent podcast without the benefits of a corporate parent or a podcast network. While that gives us total control over what we cover on the show and how we cover it, it also means that we need sponsors to help us cover the costs of making the show. Your contributions cover website hosting and security, podcast media hosting, transcription, audio processing, and much, much more. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us keep making Hub History. If you're not a sponsor and you'd like to become one, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. A big thank you to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In A City So Grand, Stephen Paleo describes President Millard Fillmore's grand entrance as he visited Boston for the first time on September 17, 1851. President Millard Fillmore rode tall, astride a black cavalry charger, gazing at the resplendent assembly spread before him on Boston Common. Handling his horse with graceful ease, Fillmore high-stepped the steed between dozens of rows of military regiments, their colors held high, inspecting the men who stood at attention under a red-streaked early evening sky. Thousands of cheering Boston residents thronged the gently rising hill that nearly encircled the field, waving flags and handkerchiefs. Echoes of booming cannon, discharged minutes earlier to announce Fillmore's arrival on the common, hung in the air. The president rode along the whole front, saluted by each company as he passed artillery and light infantry regiments, rifle brigades, and color guards, all part of Massachusetts volunteer militia. Then the line broke into columns and marched in review before the commander-in-chief, and after circling the field, formed into line again. Later, President Fillmore declared that the crisp display was the finest he had ever witnessed. Bostonians who watched the spectacle agreed. This was the president's first trip to Boston. Exactly three years before, the Fillmore campaign had come to Boston, but Millard himself wasn't with them. As we discussed back in episode 128, a number of campaign proxies came to Boston instead, headlined by the future president, Abraham Lincoln. The country lawyer and first-term congressman stayed in Boston from September 25th to the 23rd stumping for Fillmore in Boston and around the region. Perhaps the closest that President Fillmore had gotten to Boston prior to September 17, 1851, was through his great-grandfather, John Fillmore. Back in 1723, John was a fisherman from Ipswich, who ended up getting taken captive by a pirate named John Phillips while fishing off the coast of Newfoundland. He was pressed into service on Phillips' ship against his will repeatedly asking to be set free, even if it meant being marooned on a desert island. After seven months among the pirates, Fillmore and another unwilling member of the crew saw their chance, and they attacked Phillips and his officers with their tools. John Fillmore personally decapitated Captain Phillips with an axe, 
then sailed for Boston. About two weeks later, the town was thrown into much surprise when Fillmore arrived in Boston Harbor carrying Captain Phillips' head in a pickle jar. You can learn more about that and more pirate history in episode 80. But in the meantime, I believe that was the last time a Fillmore visited Boston prior to September 1851. Along with the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Interior, President Fillmore departed Washington, D.C. on Monday, September 15th. They took a train from D.C. to New York, then boarded the steamer Bay State for an overnight trip to Newport, where they arrived at 10 a.m. on Tuesday. The president and his entourage spent the day in Newport being received by local officials, as well as meeting emissaries from Massachusetts, who carried further details about the program of events that would begin upon the president's arrival in Boston. A lieutenant colonel of the state militia described the initial reception that was planned for the president. A part of the militia will be under orders near and at the line of the city of Boston to escort you to the lodgings, which he understands the authorities of that city have provided for you. His Excellency has also instructed us to tender to you a review of the troops composing the escort on Boston Common, at such hour as may be convenient to you. And he's directed us to attend you in person to the capital of the state, if that should meet your pleasure. The President said that he'd be happy to participate in a military review, as long as he could be provided with a good horse so he could review the troops from horseback and not within a carriage. He also waxed effusive about the upcoming celebration, saying almost as much about Boston's Railroad Jubilee while in Newport as he actually did in Boston. In response to a member of the Boston Committee, he said, You have alluded, sir, to the completion of the long lines of railway connecting the Canadas and the Great Lakes with Massachusetts and the ocean as one of the causes which have occasioned this invitation at this time. However gratifying it might be to come amongst you at any time, it is particularly so to be present at the celebration of such an event. For, I confess, I feel a deep interest in whatever is connected with the prosperity and the happiness of any part of our common country. Massachusetts has done as much as any portion of the United States to extend and multiply facilities for trade and intercourse. And I am glad, sir, that she has now stretched forth her iron arms to the Great West and the Canadas. Although I am not, sir, in favor of annexation, in a certain sense of the term, for I think we have territory enough, yet I am entirely in favor of all the means by which the states and countries can be bound together by ties of mutual interest and reciprocal commercial advantage. You have also spoken, sir, of the establishment of a line of American steamships between your principal city and foreign ports. This, too, is a subject in which I take a deep interest. I rejoice in all measures which extend and increase our means of intercourse with foreign countries and strengthen and enlarge our foreign commerce. It must have been noticed that the great improvement which has taken place in our relations with one another and with other countries is owing principally to the rivalry between our great cities, and this is a generous rivalry. New York, as you know, has already completed a great work, by which he meant the Erie Canal, which extends her trade to the West, and, in whatever part of our land these enterprises are begun, we all feel a deep interest in their success, because they serve to multiply among us the resources of living, 
and by giving us mutual interests and making us better acquainted with one another, they must strengthen the bonds by which we are joined together in common union. After breakfast on Wednesday the 17th, the President and his party boarded a steamer for the brief trip to Fall River. At Fall River, he transferred to another steamboat, where he was greeted by members of the Boston Committee and gave brief remarks, praising Fall River, Boston, and Massachusetts in general, after catching his first brief glimpse of the Bay State. From Fall River, President Fillmore boarded the Old Colony Railroad, which took him to Harrison Square in Dorchester. There were more speeches, and a company of Lancers accompanied the President's carriage to the Roxbury Town Line, where more speeches were given, and the party swelled with more officials and more members of the public. They all arrived at Boston Neck to start the official parade at noon, where they were met with a 21-gun salute. Much like Lafayette's visit in 1824, which you can learn more about in episode 163, every street corner was decked out with flags, red, white, and blue bunting, and signs bearing patriotic slogans. The trip from Washington to the Boston town line had taken from Monday morning to Wednesday at noon, basically two full days. This was considered a remarkably fast time. When Mayor John P. Bigelow greeted President Fillmore upon his arrival in Boston, both men focused on the changes that had taken place since Boston first welcomed a U.S. president, George Washington, in 1789. You can hear more about that visit in episode 147. The mayor contrasted the state of the city and nation in 1851 to that in 1789. Sir, the people of Boston now crowd her gates to receive, with their tokens of honor, the great head of the republic. And in their name, I bid you welcome to this metropolis. We regard it as a happy omen that we receive you on the spot where our fathers gathered to hail the coming of Washington in the first year of his presidency. The contrast exhibited between that period and this is striking and instructive. The salutations extended to the first president were the offering of only 18,000 inhabitants. The welcome tendered to a successor this day is the voice of a population of 140,000. The ruler who was then received administered the affairs of less than four millions of people, who had but lately emerged from the smoke of a battle for independence, and were just beginning under the auspices of liberty and union, to take rank among the nations of the earth. You, sir, we acknowledge as the executive chief of a population of 25 millions, living in the enjoyment of an amount of prosperity and happiness almost unparalleled in the history of the world. In reply, President Fillmore focused on how fast his trip to the hub had been when compared with a certain past president who made a similar trip to Boston. You have alluded to the visit of General Washington to this city. What a change has taken place since the time when he first visited this city, not for the purpose of receiving the cordial congratulations of her citizens, but for that of defending her against that great and then adverse power of the mother country. If my memory serves me aright, that son of Virginia, he who connected the fate of that state with yours, when appointed at Philadelphia commander-in-chief of the armies of the United Colonies, set out forthwith from that place for the seat of war. History tells us that he traveled from Philadelphia to this vicinity in 11 days, and that on his arrival the good people of Watertown gathered together and congratulated him on the speed of his journey. What has brought about this change? 
Why is it that the distance which it took him eleven days to travel over, and that too when a most critical state of affairs called for the utmost speed, has now been passed over by me as a matter of pleasure in almost as many hours? It is owing in great part to the intelligence of your citizens, who have also opened avenues of commerce to the Western world, which is now through them pouring into your lap her rich treasures. The city's ecstatic reception for the president and the president's warm reaction stand in stark contrast to Fillmore's address to the Senate in February of the same year. Nothing could be more unexpected than that such a gross violation of law, such a high-handed contempt for the authority of the United States, should be perpetrated by a band of lawless Confederates at noonday in the city of Boston, and in the very Temple of Justice in a community distinguished for its love of order and respect for laws, among a people whose sentiment is liberty and law, not liberty without law, nor above the law, such an outrage could only be the result of sudden violence, unhappily too much unprepared for to be successfully resisted. It would be melancholy indeed if we were obliged to regard this outbreak against the constitutional and legal authority of the government as proceeding from the general feeling of the people in a spot which is proverbially called the cradle of American liberty. For those who might not remember the first couple of months of our podcast's run, back in episodes 15 and 16, we discussed Boston's attempts to rescue prisoners who were being held at Boston's federal courthouse under the Fugitive Slave Act. In February of 1851, a group of mostly black abolitionists stormed the courtroom and bodily carried an accused fugitive named Shadrach Minkins out the door. They turned him over to the Underground Railroad, which whisked Minkins out of the state and across the Canadian border, before the authorities could react. Two months later, a man named Thomas Sims was accused under the same law. This time, a long-shot plan to spirit the alleged fugitive away under the cover of night was foiled when iron bars were fitted across his cell window at the last minute. Knowing now that Boston was a powder keg, President Fillmore sent the U.S. Navy to haul away the prisoner and deliver him back to bondage in Georgia. He deputized Boston's nascent police force, the town marshals, as federal officers, and 300 of them marched Mr. Sims to the docks with swords drawn when it came time to transport him back to slavery. I've been trying not to hit people over the head with comparisons between historical tragedies and President Trump lately, but after seeing federal secret police snatch protesters off the streets of Portland and throw them into vans, do you think that the mayor would turn around and invite the president to a jubilee in the city? Or that the people of Portland would turn out by the tens of thousands to cheer him? The unexpectedly warm welcome for President Fillmore was due in part to the desperation of the Whig Party in Boston to tamp down the anger and sectionalism that many already feared could cause New England to secede from the Union over the slavery issue sparking a bloody civil war. It was also due in no small part to enthusiasm on the part of the public and the president for railroads. Stephen Paleo notes that the president was a longtime devotee of railroads, who frequently wove together the themes of commerce, unionism, and peace in his speeches and public statements. The president was in town, after all, for a grand railroad jubilee which marked the culmination of 15 years of rapid railroad development in Boston. 
The celebration was not for the first railroads, although Boston and the surrounding area made several early advances in railroading. As early as 1799, and certainly by 1805, rails were being used on Beacon Hill. Though anthropologist Frederick Gamps jumps through rhetorical hoops in a 1992 article to redefine what we should consider a railroad, in order to call this Beacon Hill contraption America's first railroad. In 1799, Charles Bullfinch may have used a railway to help level the top of Beacon Hill. While in 1805, Silas Whitney used a similar railway to move material for the cut-and-fill project that filled the flats of Beacon Hill, along today's Charles Street. In the article, Gamst quotes a carpenter named Abner House, who worked on the 1805 project, describing the Beacon Hill Railway. There was a railroad running in a southwesterly direction from the top of the hill. It struck Cedar Street a little to the south of Mount Vernon Street, and struck Charles Street on the east side. It was used with a large pulley at the top fastened to each set of cars, and one set of cars went up while the others went down, both being attached together. There were branch rails at the top and bottom. It would be difficult for me to say how many men and teams there were. Of the branch rails, House said, At the top, they led to various parts of the hill, and those at the bottom, at the places they wanted to fill up. Gamps describes the Beacon Hill Railway as being about a quarter mile of wooden rails, with horses and men helping to move the cars when gravity wasn't enough. While the Beacon Hill Railway was a technological marvel at the turn of the 19th century, and a boon to the landmaking efforts of the time, it was still a far cry from what we think of when we hear the word railroad. Another local project gets a little closer to the railroads that we know. Starting in 1826, a railway was constructed in nearby Quincy to bring granite from the vast quarries at the foot of the Blue Hills to a wharf on the Deposit River three miles away. Originally designed to haul the granite selected for the Bunker Hill Monument, the Granite Railway deserves its own episode at some point. It used wooden rails on granite ties, with large wooden wagons pulled by horses to haul the granite. The Granite Railway drove technological advances like turntables and rail switches, and later in the 19th century, it would get absorbed into the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. A decade later, the first modern railroads arose in Boston. In 1830, a corporation was chartered to build a rail link between Boston and Lowell, and the following year, corporations were created to construct lines to Providence and Worcester. The Boston and Lowell Railroad roughly followed the course of the old Middlesex Canal, and it terminated near today's North Station. It opened in May of 1835. The Boston and Worcester Railroad came into Boston parallel to the Charles River. Then it cut across the unfilled mudflats to the Back Bay on embankments and short bridges to terminate near today's South Station, opening on July 4, 1835. The Boston and Providence came through Canton on a massive granite viaduct, at the time the largest in the world. It entered the city from the south, also crossing the Back Bay mudflats and making an X on period maps or across the Boston and Worcester tracks. The main terminal was in Park Square, and it also opened in July 1835. After a frenzy of competition to build the first railway into Boston, three opened in quick succession in the summer of 1835. 
This railroad building craze of 1835 wasn't really driven by competition among the Boston area lines. Instead, Boston's ancient rivalry with New York City drove the construction boom. Starting in 1825, the Erie Canal opened, connecting the enormous natural harbor of New York through the Hudson Valley, up the canal to the Great Lakes. The Port of New York began carrying the commerce of today's upper Midwest and what was then Western Canada. Boston had long been a rival to New York and Philadelphia when it came to trade with Europe. But without a Hudson River to allow ocean-going vessels to penetrate deep into the interior of the continent, our fair city began to fall behind. Just as the rail lines of 1835 were an attempt to build our way to parity with New York's Erie Canal, the celebration in 1851 represented an attempt to build an answer to the St. Lawrence River. Boston's Railroad Jubilee was meant to celebrate the opening of a new rail connection between Boston and important new markets in Canada. The first letter from the Boston Committee that planned the Jubilee to the Boston Atlas describes the importance of this link and the decision to hold a grand celebration. The northern lines to Canada are now completed. Before the period of the celebration, Boston will be within 12 hours' travel of Montreal. And during the next winter, the facilities for communication will be such that a revolution in the trade between the Atlantic coast and the Canadas will be effected. After conference with many of our leading merchants and persons connected with the great lines of travel, the members of our city government thought that the importance of these means of communication to the trade and commerce of Boston was well worthy the attention of its municipal officers, and that the present period was a most favorable time to commemorate the completion and success of those vast schemes of internal communication which our citizens had at great sacrifices been able to construct. It was thought that the commemorative services should be upon a scale commensurate with the magnitude of the enterprises they were designed to celebrate. The officers of the various railway lines in New England, and those of our public-spirited merchants and capitalists, to whose energy and sagacious foresight our city is mainly indebted for her high character, both in our own country and abroad, gave their warm approval to the measure, and pledged their aid and cooperation. The work was entrusted to a committee of 23 members of the city government. It was deemed advisable that a deputation from the general committee should personally visit the candidates to seek cooperation of the provincial and municipal authorities, and by interviews with the principal business firms and persons connected with or interested in the lines of travel, to secure the attendance of those whose visit to Boston would be the most conducive to give publicity to the great mass of the people of the completion of the lines of railway, the facilities now open for freight and travel, and the peculiar advantages our city enjoys as the great outlet on the Atlantic coast for the immense productions of the West and the Canadas, and also the facilities which are open for the transit of merchandise from foreign ports destined for the Canadian markets. The presidents of all the northern lines of railway from Boston furnished the committee with free passes over the various roads. Our merchants and public men gave them letters of introduction to the Canadian merchants and authorities. They left Boston upon their mission with the determination that every proper effort should be made to render the Railroad Jubilee of 1851 worthy of the great event to be commemorated and the character of the city whose representatives they were. Along with a mission to Canada, the Boston Committee also invited the President of the United States. The President wasn't just coming to town because he liked trains, however. After the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, 
and especially the violent rescue of Shadrach Minkins and militarized extradition of Thomas Sims, cracks began appearing in the foundation of the Whig Party, to which both President Fillmore and Boston Mayor Bigelow belonged. On one side, Unionists argued that preserving the United American States was of the utmost importance, and compromising with slavers in the South was distasteful but necessary. They worried about the growing willingness of abolitionists to use violence to achieve their ends, both in the freeing of accused fugitives here in Boston and in the border violence that was beginning to simmer below the surface in what was then Indian Territory, but would soon be known as Bleeding Kansas, as we discussed in episode 195. On the other side, the Free Soilers held few illusions that they'd be able to end slavery or even reduce the territory where it was practiced within the U.S. Instead, they were laser-focused on preventing slavery from being introduced into the newly created states on the western frontier. With the annexation of Texas, followed quickly by victory in the Mexican-American War, the United States suddenly controlled territory reaching all the way to the Pacific Ocean, including gold-rich California. If slavery was allowed to expand into this new territory, the Free Soilers believed it would spell the end of the delicate balance between free labor and slave power that had been maintained since the founding era. And there were even rumblings that New England might secede from the Union if that happened. In the weeks leading up to the Jubilee, it seemed uncertain that the president would be able to attend, because his attention was diverted onto two crises. First, a group of American mercenaries invaded Cuba, trying to end Spanish rule and set up a pro-slavery republic that might be annexed by the U.S., like Texas had been. Weeks later, four enslaved men escaped from Maryland across the state line into free Pennsylvania. When their enslaver pursued them onto free soil, a gunfight broke out in Christiana, Pennsylvania, with armed African-American vigilantes killing the enslaver and wounding his son. So you can see why, as Michael J. Connolly wrote in a 2006 article, when it came to the Railroad Jubilee, New England's Whigs were eager participants, for they had faith in the industry's potential to heal a fractious party and a fractured nation. Railroads would moderate the classic danger to a Republican government, expansive territory. Through the blessing of speedy travel, free-soil Whigs and conservative Unionist Whigs as well as the diverse populations of South, West, and North, would be drawn into closer contact, economically and socially, and the resulting familiarity would help end sectional discord. For reformers and ministers, railroads would help end slavery by bringing Southerners North and demonstrating to them the efficiency and justice of an expanding, prosperous, middle-class New England. Moreover, railroads were a mean to reform or correct New England's geographic isolation. Just as dedication and resolve could reform and shape individual souls, so too could technological ingenuity devise inventions like railroads to subdue, subvert, and conquer nature. These resounding Whiggish themes, conquering political, national, and natural divisions and bettering self and nation, were present in abundance at the Boston Railroad Jubilee. Whig Unionists mounted a spirited campaign in the late spring and summer of 1851 to form a new Massachusetts Union Party around Daniel Webster. But many loyal, lifelong Whigs like Robert Winthrop resisted. When Winthrop emerged as the front-runner for the Whig gubernatorial nomination in Massachusetts, 
Webster and his allies attacked his candidacy. Thus, by September 1851, a further split, one between Winthrop's moderates and Webster's conservative unionists, splintered the already divided Massachusetts Whigs, and the party's chances in the fall elections seemed slim. Perhaps the president, who was an attractive candidate for re-election in 1852, especially among conservatives, could reunite Massachusetts Whigs, as well as a bickering nation, around the miracle of railroads. Whether through turnpikes, canals, telegraphs, or railroads, Whigs maintained that increased communication between cities and states reduced prejudice, ignorance, and fear, and, most important by the 1850s, would preclude civil war. Fearful of the economic rivalries and political jealousies that could easily develop within a republic, Whigs like Fillmore persistently pushed for any method of communication that would break down the barriers of time and space that separated citizens from each other. The more quickly men could travel from Boston to Mobile, Maine to Alabama, north to south, the less likely they were to succumb to misunderstanding and violence. Combining a calculating rationalism based on swift technological advances with a soft, reassuring romanticism born of a republic's need for amity and common purpose, Whigs hoped to forge a national brotherhood on the back of the steam train. Planning for the Railroad Jubilee proceeded incredibly quickly from concept to execution. On July 14, 1851, almost exactly two months before the Jubilee actually commenced, Boston Mayor John P. Bigelow proposed a resolution which was passed by the city council. It appointed a committee to determine how best to celebrate the upcoming connection of Boston to Montreal by rail. On August 1st, the city published a circular to its residents explaining the proposed jubilee. The city government of Boston proposed to celebrate, in an appropriate manner, the final completion of the Great Lines of Railway, uniting the tidewater at Boston with the Canadas and the Great West, and also the establishment of American lines of steamers between Boston and Liverpool. The importance of these events to the great social and commercial interests of our city can hardly be exaggerated. We are now about to realize, it is believed, the full benefit of those great enterprises, in the perfecting of which we have expended so much capital. The several lines connecting us with the Canadas, northern New York, the Great Lakes, and the Far West are now completed, uniting us by railroad and steam navigation with 13 states of the Union, the two Canadas, the Lakes, and bringing within our commercial sphere a population of 10 millions of inhabitants. And now, what are the advantages which Boston possesses for doing this immense business? These are so manifest that their importance will be readily appreciated. Her harbor is one of the finest in the world. Her wharves and storage accommodations are equal, if not superior, to those in any other city, and capable of indefinite extension. Her local position is unrivaled, and the enterprise and integrity of her merchants are well known. The lines of railway to which we have alluded all center in her and radiate from her. It is ascertained from the actual results of this year's business that under favorable circumstances, all kinds of provisions can be brought from the West through these new lines of communication to Boston more speedily and at less expense than to any other Atlantic port. Merchandise can be landed at Ogdensburg on Lake Ontario, put on board the cars at that place, brought to Boston without transshipment, and from here exported to England by means of our steamships, in much less time than it can be done by any other route. 
It seems to us then that Boston has every facility for becoming a great exporting as well as importing city. Cargoes from Liverpool and steamships via Boston may be delivered in Montreal in 12 days. This fact, taken in connection with the fact that the St. Lawrence is closed by ice during five months of the year, and that the communication with Boston is uninterrupted during the whole year, must make Boston, as it seems to us, the port of entry for the Canadas, thus opening to us a business the extent of which we have not begun to realize. In view of the above facts, and in conformity with the expressed wishes of many of the citizens of Boston, the city government proposed to celebrate the completion of these lines of railways by a festival in Faneuil Hall and other appropriate ceremonies. It is proposed to invite to be present with us on that occasion the Governor-General of Canada, his staff and cabinet, the leading members of the Canadian Parliament, the Corporation of Montreal, the leading merchants in all the Canadian cities and Ogdensburg, the President of the United States and his cabinet, the governors of the New England states, the presidents of all the railways in New England, the mayors of the cities of New England, and others interested in railways and steam navigation. We cordially invite the cooperation of our fellow citizens of Boston in order that this celebration may be in some degree commensurate with the great importance of the events to be celebrated. The 12-hour journey from Boston to Montreal that the Jubilee was meant to celebrate was not yet a reality when the Boston Committee set out to recruit attendees from Canada on August 9th, just over one month before the Jubilee was set to begin. This was long before Amtrak or the commuter rail, or any sort of regional or national rail network. A 1930 retrospective of the Boston Transcript's first century recalls the patchwork of local railways that existed at the time. One railroad was put through after another, generally for local service and as the result of local investment. Through service was little thought of. Passengers going to Springfield went by the Boston and Worcester to Worcester, and then changed cars and proceeded by the Western Railroad. If they were bound for Bellows Falls, they changed from the Fitchburg Road to the Cheshire Road at Fitchburg. By the year 1851, there were 25 separate companies and as many independent railroads operating in New England. The committee traveled by rail through Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont, changing trains each time one regional railroad ended and a new one began. Arriving on the shores of Lake Champlain, as close as they'd come to Montreal on this leg of the journey, on August 11th. A steamboat took them across the lake, then another train took them to the Canadian border on the St. Lawrence River at Ogdensburg, New York. From there, they took another boat up the St. Lawrence, across Lake Ontario, and landed in Toronto. The committee reported, The delegation were received at the landing in Toronto by the mayor and members of the corporation, and by several of the Governor-General's cabinet ministers. The news of the attended visit of the committee had preceded their arrival, and the authorities had made arrangements to receive and welcome them. In a short time after the arrival of the delegation, the Governor-General, through the interposition of his aide-de-camp, assigned an early hour for an interview at the government house. At the time appointed, the committee waited upon Lord Elgin and were received with a cordiality which was quite gratifying to them. The letters of invitation and introduction were delivered, and the objects of the mission were stated. The interview was of the most pleasurable character. 
While they waited to see if the local and national leadership in Canada would accept their invitations to visit Boston for the Jubilee, members of the committee took in Toronto, writing to the Boston Atlas with detailed descriptions of the city's water and sewer systems, its commercial streets and traffic patterns, and, of course, its railroads. They also described the chaos of a session of Parliament and the pomp and circumstance of the 71st Regiment of Highlanders. They visited barracks, churches, schools, and an asylum, where the presence of a black man who'd escaped after being enslaved by Henry Clay led to a discussion of the many so-called fugitives who'd followed the Underground Railroad across the northern border. Finally, the committee got their RSVPs. The mayor and corporation accepted the invitation of the committee to visit Boston at the Railroad Jubilee and the principal mercantile houses to whom letters of introduction had been sent were very much interested in the proposed festivities. Through the agency of the merchants, bankers, and public officers, the names of the most prominent merchants in Canada West were obtained, and invitations were forwarded to their address. The committee were gratified that Lord Elgin would accept the invitation of the Boston Municipal Authorities if the state of public affairs would allow him to leave the province at the period of the commemorative festivities. His cabinet ministers, many members of parliament, officers of the army, and official personages have accepted invitations to be present. The committee left Toronto on August 15th and took the long way home. They stopped in Montreal to extend an invitation to the Jubilee to the officials of that town, and they met a long-lost friend along the way. The delegation met the mayor and corporation at their rooms. Mr. Brindley, in behalf of the municipal authorities of Boston, explained the objects of the mission and extended a formal invitation to the Corporation of Montreal to visit Boston the week of the Railroad Jubilee. The mayor replied in behalf of his associates and accepted the invitation. The delegation were gratified to find a native of Boston, a member of the Montreal Board of Aldermen. This gentleman resided in Boston when the present city hall was erected and worked upon the building at his trade of stonemason. He went to Canada during the last war as a soldier, under General Dearborn, and after the Peace of 1815, settled in Canada, where by his enterprise and industry he has secured a competence. He assured the committee that he would visit Boston and call upon them in the building which he worked upon and which they worked in. Both at Montreal and during their subsequent visit to Quebec, the letters from the Boston Committee reveal a healthy dose of that old Yankee bias against all things Catholic. The writer remarks disparagingly on the clerical dress of every order of priests, nuns, and Jesuits he encounters, and he compares a group of nuns' physical appearance unfavorably to the witches in Macbeth. He patronizingly suggests that, By visiting New England and personally witnessing the great results which have been attained here within the past 30 years, the people of Canada will have evidence which cannot be mistaken, that by a judicious application of capital and a liberal policy, or in a word, by following the example of the people of Massachusetts, a few years only will be required to give such an impetus to their trade, manufactures, and agriculture that those now upon the stage will see their cities and towns contain double their present population and their agricultural districts become the abode of a frugal, wealthy, and prosperous community. In a tour of two weeks, the committee spread invitations far and wide, and all of them came with an offer of free tickets to Boston. 
In the next year's annual report for the Fitchburg Railroad, the company saw a decline in ridership of over 95,000 tickets from the previous year. They said this wasn't a true indicator of problems. Instead, they wrote, This decrease is, in part, owing to running a less number of excursion trains in 1852 and passing a large number free over the road from Canada at the Railroad Jubilee in September 1851. Notwithstanding there has been a decrease in the number of passengers carried, there has been an increase in the earnings received from passengers, the travel averaging longer than in the former year. The committee returned from Canada at the end of August, and on September 8th, nine days before the Jubilee was set to begin, the city announced the order of arrangements for the three-day celebration. Wednesday, September 17th. On this day, the distinguished invited guests of the city will be received with appropriate honors and escorted by a military body and the city government to the houses provided for them. In the afternoon of this day, the various public institutions of the city and points of interest in its vicinity will be visited and the members of the city government will devote the day and attention to their guests. Thursday, September 18th. On this day, there will be a grand excursion in Boston Harbor, and the various objects of interest therein will be visited. For this purpose, suitable steamers will be engaged and collations and music provided. The shipping in the harbor will be decorated for the occasion. Friday, September 19th. On the morning of this day, there will be a civic procession, escorted by the Boston Brigade, the route and details of which will be announced hereafter. The children of the public schools will take a prominent part in the proceedings of this day. In the afternoon, a banquet will be given by the city government in honor of their invited guests, which will be held under a pavilion on Boston Common. On the evening of this day, the public buildings of the city will be illuminated and a display of fireworks made from various parts of the city and harbor. The City Council's official report on the Jubilee says that in the last days before the official start of the celebration, the city resounded with the stirring notes of preparation, and everything betokened the near approach of the long-expected day. The extreme beauty of the weather, the busy activity displayed in the decoration of the streets, the mustering of military companies, the throngs of strangers from all parts of the land, every train bringing accessions of welcome visitors, and the certainty that the President of the United States and the Governor-General of Canada were on their way hither, all gave promise of a full realization of the most sanguine anticipations. In the course of the day, Tuesday, a telegraphic dispatch was received by the mayor, announcing that a large number of Canadians, including the city authorities of Montreal, Toronto, Cobourg, and other places, were on their way to Boston. A committee was forthwith deputed to receive the guests, and twelve carriages were dispatched to the Lowell Railroad Station to convey them to their respective hotels. Lowell Street was handsomely decorated in honor of the strangers, and the English and American flags, becomingly arranged in festoons, were displayed near the depot. The first day of the Jubilee, as I've already described, was largely occupied with the Grand Parade escorting the President into Boston, and then the Military Review on Boston Common. When those festivities drew to a close, President Fillmore got settled into his lodgings at the Revere House Hotel, receiving a few visitors, including members of his cabinet. Then, at 4 p.m., he went up Beacon Hill for a State House reception. There, Governor George Bootwell welcomed him warmly, inspiring the President to respond, 
and to obliquely address his earlier harsh stance against Boston's radical abolitionists. You have said, sir, that Massachusetts is prepared to sustain the Constitution and the Union. Sir, as I passed through this city and saw its streets lined for miles with a dense multitude of people, and witnessed the perfect order that everywhere prevailed, I could not for a moment believe that this community, though often excited, could ever be brought to commit treason against the United States. Sir, it has been my duty, sometimes a painful one, to execute the laws of the Union upon those who did not approve of them. This must inevitably be the case with all who occupy the position which I now hold. But, sir, I see manifested in the faces of this intelligent community that which assures me that insofar as this city is concerned, and I believe so far as the state is concerned, this duty, however painful it may be, may hereafter be performed with ease. The speechifying continued for quite a while, with Whig's Whig Robert Winthrop up next. On the subject of railroads, he said, Consider them for an instant in connection with the extent of our own widespread republic. By what other agency than that of railroads could a representative government like ours be rendered practicable over so vast a territory? The necessary limits of such a government were justly defined by one of our earliest and wisest statesmen to be those within which the representatives of the people could be brought together with regularity and certainty, as often as needful, to transact the public business. And by which do you think, sir, of the old-fashioned modes of transportation or travel, the stagecoach, the pack saddle, or the long wagon, could delegates from California or Utah, or even from some of our less recent and less remote acquisitions, be brought to our sessions of Congress at Washington and carried back at stated intervals to consult with the wishes of their constituents within any reasonable or reliable time? Mr. Mayor, in view of this and many other considerations, to which I may not take up further time by alluding, and which indeed are too familiar to require any allusion, I feel that it is no exaggeration to say that our railroad system is an essential part of our representative system, and that it has exerted an influence, second in importance to no other that can be named, material, political, or moral, in binding together in one indissoluble brotherhood, this vast association of American states. It is hardly too much to add that it seems to have been providentially prepared as the great centripetal enginery, which is destined to overcome and neutralize forever those deplorable centrifugal tendencies which local differences and peculiar institutions and sectional controversies have too often engendered. The Secretary of State was followed by the Secretary of the Interior and then the Secretary of War. After everyone had said their piece, it was time for a formal dinner at the Revere House, and the President was in his rooms by 11 p.m. The next morning dawned clear and warm. By that time, there were thousands of visitors in town from around New England and Canada. They began lining up at Long Wharf early in the morning in hopes of securing a place on one of the eight steamships that would take the President and the other guests of honor on a guided tour of Boston Harbor. The City Council report on the Jubilee estimates that between 3,500 and 4,000 people managed to pack their way onto the steamers before the scheduled departure time of 10 a.m. arrived. The flotilla paused at the Cunard Line wharves in East Boston to formally inaugurate service on the new Grand Junction Railroad, which was the last link uniting Cunard steamship service to Liverpool, England, with the Boston, Concord, and Montreal Railway. As the first car ceremonially crossed the town line from Chelsea into East Boston, 
then slowly made its way onto the pier, symbolically linking Western Canada with Old England, a battery of militia cannons fired a 21-gun salute. That was far from the last artillery salute fired that day. As the fleet made its way down the harbor, revenue cutters and shore batteries fired repeated 21-gun salutes, while the crowds that lined the shores shouted themselves hoarse in enthusiasm. They steamed out past Castle Island into the outer harbor, then turned south toward Cohasset. President Fillmore wanted a chance to see Minot's Ledge, where two lighthouse keepers and the original Minot's Lighthouse had been lost in a storm a few months back. The party ran out of time before getting too far out of Boston Harbor, though, and they turned back. Upon disembarking, it was time for the evening's many banquets, with the one attended by the president held again at Revere House. In the middle of the meal, Governor General Lord Elgin arrived on the Western Railroad. Along with Lord Elgin came a contingent of advisors, officers, and an honor guard, leading to the disconcerting appearance of scarlet-clad British officers striding the streets of Boston as though it was 1770 all over again. This time, however, they got along a bit better with the locals, as Robert C. Winthrop recalled in a letter declining a July 4th dinner invite in 1853. Among the most agreeable results of this lapse of time has been the gradual abatement may I not say the almost complete extinction, of those feelings of bitter animosity and resentment toward the mother country, which were so naturally engendered by our long struggle for independence. It was not a little edifying, certainly, at your recent railroad jubilee, to find the reappearance of the British redcoats in our streets, hailed and greeted with as much cordiality as if they had never been associated with the arbitrary measures of Lord North and Governor Gage. After exchanging formal greetings with the mayor at the depot, Lord Elgin was conducted to the president's table at Revere House. That evening, there were no formal speeches. Don't worry, though. On the final day of the Jubilee, there would be plenty of speeches to go around for everyone. It was another beautiful day. Or, as the city council report put it, The morning of Friday, September 19th, the last day of the celebration, disappointed no fondly indulged hope, but dawned brightly and beautifully, filling the hearts of thousands with joy and gladness and exciting the highest anticipation of pleasure. And all that the morning promised was fully realized. No cloud dimmed the mild splendor of the sun. No harsh breath from the east chilled the air. From sunrise to sunset, the weather was glorious, and entire success crowned all the proceedings of the day. The banks, the custom house, the market house, and most of the stores in the business part of the city were closed, and the occasion was observed by all classes of citizens as a holiday. The streets were thronged from early dawn to midnight with dense masses of happy people in holiday attire, and on no previous occasion perhaps in the history of the city had so large a multitude been gathered within her limits. Yet order and decorum everywhere prevailed, and gladness ruled the hour. The day's first event was another parade, but President Fillmore wasn't feeling well, so he decided to watch the procession from his hotel window rather than leading it from horseback. For every militia unit, marching band, government official, railroad company officer, elementary school class, social club, abstinence society, and trade association to have its moment in the sun took from 9 a.m. to lunchtime. For lunch, an enormous tent was erected on Boston Common for the President, the Governor-General, the other honorees, and tables for 3,600 guests. 
a banner over the main entrance carried a picture of a locomotive and rail cars in motion under the motto, Literature, Science, and the Arts. Encouragement to all. Inside, the tent was decorated with the flags of the U.S., Britain, and countries around the world. There was bunting and streamers and pennants and enormous maps of the various railroads that connected Boston to the world. The City Council report includes pages upon pages of detail about the decorations, who sat at which table, and exactly what was served at each course. Then, only about 15 minutes into the meal, Mayor Bigelow announced that the President would have to leave early to attend to the nation's business. President Fillmore then rose and bade farewell to the city that had so warmly welcomed and lavishly celebrated him, just five months after he had threatened to send troops into its streets. Mr. Mayor and fellow citizens, in acknowledging the compliment which you have paid the high office which it's my fortune to hold, I rise rather for the purpose of excusing myself than to make an address. You've been pleased to drink my health. I would that it were as perfect on this occasion as it usually is, but unfortunately for me, a slight indisposition within the last 24 hours has deprived me of the pleasure I should have enjoyed this day in participating in your exercises and I am now incapable of partaking in the tempting viands over which your miles of table groan. Indeed, I am scarcely able to enjoy the feast of reason and the flow of soul. And more than all this, I am compelled by imperious circumstances to leave you thus early in the banquet, because I feel that my public duties require that I should be at Washington with the utmost possible dispatch. I have stolen from the hours that were perhaps due to the nation a brief space to meet my fellow citizens of Boston. I meet you as citizens of Boston. On this festive occasion, we know no party distinction. Fellow citizens, I cannot say more, but my heart is full. I had no conception of what I have witnessed today from my window. I thought when I entered your city that I saw Boston in all its glory. I knew that it had its merchant princes, but I did not know until today that it had its mechanic nobleman of nature. But fellow citizens, pardon me, and permit me to bid you adieu. I can assure you that this joyous occasion will be remembered by me, and that to the latest hour of my life I shall look back upon it with delight. May our glorious union, which sheds its inestimable blessings over twenty-five millions of happy people, continue until time shall be no more. Lord Elgin rose and gave his response. Then, as the President left, the Secretary of the Interior spoke. Then the Secretary of War. Now that everyone had said goodbye to the President, the rest of the officials returned to their prepared remarks. The Mayor gave an address. Then Lord Elgin rose again to give a longer speech. After offering his regard to the U.S., his pleasure that the rift between Britain and America caused by the Revolution had been healed, and extolled the benefits of railroads, he began coming to a conclusion. Now, gentlemen, before I take my seat, permit me to close. Why, gentlemen, it must be the heir of Boston, for I have never made so long a speech before in my life. I will now offer you as a sentiment, prosperity to the trade and the city of Boston. No one, I am sure, will question the sincerity with which I propose this toast. For most assuredly, if I did not wish well to the trade in the city of Boston, I should not be here now. It may be that some of those western towns which spring up in a night and pass in the twinkling of an eye from small villages to mighty cities may, as respects population merely, have advanced more rapidly than Boston. 
but there is a stability and a solidity about Boston, which I may say is agreeable to an old country man like myself. I see buildings in Boston which look as if intended not only for the owners, but for their sons and their sons' sons to live in, after they are dead and gone. I know it has been the practice to say that a Yankee would not be satisfied with paradise if there was any place further west which he could go. But I think it's very clear that a good many genuine Yankees have found Boston an exceedingly proper place for a permanent location, although it happens to be one of the most easterly points of the continent. Next up was the governor, followed by famous orator Edward Everett, who recalled the long era of so-called French and Indian wars between Canada and the colonies. A horrible wilderness, rivers and lakes unspanned by human art, pathless swamps, dismal forests that it made the flesh creep to enter, threaded by nothing more practicable than the Indian's trail, echoing with no sound more inviting than the yell of the wolf and the war whoop of the savage. These it was that filled the space between us and Canada. The inhabitants of the British colonies never entered Canada in those days, but as provincial troops or Indian captives. And lucky he that got back with his scalp on. This state of things existed less than 100 years ago. There are men living in Massachusetts who were born before the last party of hostile Indians made an incursion to the banks of the Connecticut River. As lately as when I had the honor to be the governor of this commonwealth, I signed the pension warrant of a man who lost his arm in the year 1757, in a conflict with the Indians and French in one of those border wars, in those dreary Canadian forests. His honor the mayor will recollect it, for he countersigned the warrant as Secretary of State. Now, sir, by the magic power of these modern works of art, the forest is thrown open, the rivers and lakes are bridged, the valleys rise, the mountains bow their everlasting heads, and the Governor-General of Canada takes his breakfast in Montreal and his dinner in Boston. After a few speeches by Canadian officials, the sun went down, and in the gathering darkness the people demanded to hear from former Mayor Josiah Quincy, Jr., who closed out the night with a few brief remarks, and ended the jubilee by saying, The Canadians and Bostonians, they may meet after sunset and without candles, but can never again be in the dark as it respects the sentiments they entertain for one another. In the technological triumphalism of the Railroad Jubilee, the pastor of the Hollis Street Meeting House saw a different vision. Reverend Thomas Starr King was a famous speaker and thinker, who would eventually be one of the most influential politicians in California. In 1851, though, he was one of Boston's leading Unitarian ministers, and he gave a sermon on the Sunday after the Jubilee in which he coined a new and lasting term for the era in human history he saw beginning with Boston's Railroad Jubilee. The mention of the spectacle that recently adorned our streets leads us to some especially appropriate illustrations of our theme. We have entered into a period of society which will be characterized hereafter as the Industrial Age. It is plain that, about 50 years ago, a new direction was given to human affairs. A new force uprose in civilization, and different objects loomed ahead to draw the energies of the world. The subjugation of nature, the increase of material conveniences and comfort, the binding of nations together by communion of traffic, the conquest of space and compression of time, these are what the civilized world is now beginning to be in earnest about. It is looking to labor, not to armies and diplomacy, for its resource and the accomplishment of its dearest ambition, 
Not Mars, nor Apollo, nor even Mammon, but Vulcan stands preeminent in its regard in the pantheon of its deities. Worship is the only word that's deep enough to express the Anglo-Saxon relation to the mechanic powers and arts. We revere what they can produce more than anything else. Take us as a race. We love speed and perfection in the necessary fabrics of life, and skill in the combination of powers that give supremacy over nature, better than we love wealth, comfort, leisure, knowledge of God's world, a cultured manliness, and religious nobility and peace. Though his description of a new and dawning industrial age is full of apprehension and phrased as a warning, even King could see the promise and potential of a nationwide rail network to bind the country together. In their recent jubilee in the closing pageant within our city, an illustration is given how God draws the good of a higher sphere out of the benefits that lie in a lower order. That pageant was in honor of the completion of many years' endeavor to perfect the intercourse of the metropolis of New England and our own neighborhood with the North and West. The causal motive of the enterprise that has covered New England with nerves, of which our city is the brain, was not distinctly philanthropic. Perhaps it was chiefly selfish. Each line of road was schemed with direct reference to the return of interest on the investment and the securing of a larger trade within our streets. Not till the prospect of profit was clear could one of these undertakings be carried through. It was not the direct intention of a single board of directors of a single railroad company to do a specially Christian deed, to bind states and communities together in holier ties, to diffuse a spirit of goodwill and strengthen civilization. The stockholders, as they subscribed and paid their installments, had no such motive and purpose. The plans and the acceptance of them were for dividends and wealth. But Providence had another and higher use for those iron tracks and flying trains. After the mercantile heart had devised and secured them, God took them for his purposes. Without paying any tax for the privilege, he uses them to quicken the activity of men to send energy and vitality where before were silence and barrenness, to multiply cities and villages studded with churches, dotted with schools, and filled with happy homes and budding souls, to increase wealth which shall partially be devoted to his service and kingdom, and all along their banks to make the wilderness blossom as the rose. Without any vote of permission from the legislatures and officials, even while the cars are loaded with profitable freight and paying passengers, and the groaning engines are earning the necessary interest, Providence sends without charge its cargoes of good sentiment and brotherly feeling, disperses the culture of the city to the simplicity of the hamlet, and brings back the strength and virtue of the village and mountain to the wasting faculties of the metropolis, and fastens to every steam shuttle that flies back and forth and hither and thither an invisible thread of fraternal influence, which, entwining seashore and hill country, mart and grain field, forge and factory, Wharf and mine, slowly prepare society to realize one day the Savior's prayer, that they may all be one. Despite Reverend King's cautious optimism, and the rather less cautious optimism of the Whigs who organized the Jubilee, the new railroads did not create a techno-utopia that could bind our fractured country together and stave off the coming of a civil war. As Connolly said in his article, But the railroads could not destroy slavery nor could they save the Whig Party. In fact, in an ironic twist, railroad development tended to nurture every evil the Whigs set out to annihilate. 
Instead of harmonizing Whigs' views, railroads had the effect of promoting a consensus with Democrats, thus diminishing the Whigs' ability to present their party as a compelling political alternative. Americans could no longer tell the difference between a Fillmore Whig and a Pierce Democrat. Both were in favor of economic development, including transcontinental railroads, and both were pro-expansion. As a result, the American political system was upended and reorganized. The Whigs passed out of existence, the Democrats slowly declined in national prominence, and the newly hatched Republicans, pro-railroad but anti-slavery, dominated national politics for the remainder of the 19th century. The Whigs' notion that increased communication and travel among the regions of the country would usher in an era of national peace was also devastatingly wrong. By 1860, North and South were intimately connected, both socially and commercially, and both were widely engaged in the international economy. And still, war broke out. Indeed, the conduits of communication and cooperation that the Whigs had financed and boosted in the 1850s carried the agents and implements of war south a mere decade later. To learn more about Boston's Railroad Jubilee, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 203. I'll have links to the City Council's report on the Jubilee, Michael Connolly's article about the politics of the Jubilee, the text of Thomas Starr King's sermon, a detailed description of the Boston Committee's adventures in Canada, and many more sources I quoted from this week. I'll also have pictures of the tent where President Fillmore and the other dignitaries spoke, the president reviewing the troops on Boston Common, City Hall decorated for the Jubilee, and several street scenes during the Jubilee. And of course, I'll have links to information about our three upcoming events and Stephen Puleo's A City So Grand, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 